Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class, 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. Can Lincolnian nationalism save America? Well, one scholar who I actually like thinks so, but I disagree. I'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com, buying classes there. And if you're listening to this podcast, again, we're right at the very end of this. In June of 2023, use the coupon code JUNE. Get 25% off all of my classes at McClanahan Academy. And you're going to do that because on July 1st, 2023, the prices are going to go up. So get the classes for the best price you're ever going to get them again. And I've got everything on sale, including the bundles, which are already discounted. But now you get a further discount with the 25%. So the bundles are at least two classes, but in some cases, four classes. So it really is a great deal. And you want to capitalize on that. Because on June 30th, actually on July 1st, when everything goes up, end of the day, June 30th, everything goes up in price. So you want to you want to take advantage of that while you can. You can also support the show by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Throw a few pennies my way there. Or go to Spotify for podcasters. You can you can subscribe there. You can click on the super thanks button under this video if you're watching on YouTube. You can send a few pennies my way that way. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Let people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. And, of course, comment on YouTube for the algorithm. And send me those show requests. I do want to see what you want to hear. All right. Well, let's talk about Abraham Lincoln. And I said at the beginning, there's a scholar that I actually like that says, "What what we need in America is more Lincolnian nationalism because of all these different conservative groups talking about nationalism now. Well, what kind of nationalism do we actually need? Is it um, Christian nationalism? Is it some kind of uh, conservative nationalism? What is it? What do we need in America that would save America? And of course, this is based on the assumption that what we need is real nationalism. And I've argued against that for a long period of time. But if we had to look for a national figure that could save America, it wouldn't be Abraham Lincoln. Now, I'm going to read this piece that he wrote for uh, Real Clear Politics, I think it was, or Real Clear Policy, one of the others. Uh, this is Miles Smith. He teaches at Hillsdale College, and I like Miles. Miles is a, he's a, a very nice fellow. Uh, he loves the South. Uh, he likes Southern history. Um, but I disagree with him on, on this particular issue. And, of course, I've, I've covered some of his other material in this podcast before, and uh, one on secession, for example. But um, I don't necessarily agree with, with Miles on, on many of his positions on, say, federalism or... Uh, decentralization. But again, he's uh, he's someone who I think everyone should read and very nice fellow. Has a, If you follow him on social media, his, his Twitter feed is uh, always full of all kinds of cool stuff. 
Uh, he's pretty eclectic in what he puts up there. So it's definitely worth a follow just to see what he's posting. Uh, Alan Mendenhall, by the way, who was a dean at Troy University, is the same way. Always posts some really interesting uh, material on his Twitter feed. So if you like links and you like to see stuff that's just, you know, cultural, art, uh, politics at times, but he doesn't focus on one thing or another. And I think history, and I think that's what makes those Twitter feeds very interesting. But I want to talk about this piece that he wrote for Real Clear Policy on Lincoln. And um, again, if we're going to follow a, a nationalist, it wouldn't be Lincoln. It would actually be George Washington. And I'll talk about that in, in a minute. And that'll actually segue into what you're going to need to get next week. I think it's going to be next week, no later than a week after. But next week, when the next class at McClanahan Academy comes out. But let's talk about this piece. The title is, Why We Should Uphold the Nationalism of Lincoln. Well, right there. I mean, look. I've said before on this show, if you're going to use Lincoln, you're going to be disappointed. And you're going to be disappointed because anybody can use Lincoln as an example in America. And what I mean by that is that the left can use Lincoln, the right can use Lincoln, at least supposedly, but they all use Lincoln. And when that starts happening, you know that figure has been distorted. You know who the left doesn't use as an example? George Washington. They don't ever use George Washington as an example of someone we should emulate. But Abraham Lincoln, yeah. I mean, this is this is the funniest part about this. And why would Lincoln be so attractive to the left? Well, because he began the modern leftist revolution in America. I mean, this is, you have to go to Lincoln for this, Republican Party. Now, what, what Smith points out here is that Lincoln was still reserved in some of these things. So conservatives can actually use that because he, he, he was on board with some of the social transformation, but it was always restrained. And so that restraint is really what the Straussians, the West Coast Straussians, are going after. You see, if you look at their arguments at the core, they're fine with the revolution of the 1860s. They're fine with all of that. But they want that restraint. What I mean by that is they want to say, well, we can go to this point, but no further. The problem with that argument, and I've said it many times, is that the left won't stop. They won't say, okay, yeah, you're right. We can only go to this point, and then we can't go any further than that. They're going to say, well, why do we have to stop there? I mean, if the true goal is equality, equality for all. And I was actually on a live last night, McClanahan Academy Live. We wrapped up our latest class on commentaries on the Constitution. And I was talking about something that uh, Raoul Berger and his book on the 14th Amendment brought up. And it was that, you know, when the 14th Amendment was, was being proposed and, of course, debated in Congress, Thad Stevens, the radical Republican, said, we need to make, we need to have a, a, something in the Constitution that prohibit discrimination on anything. And you know what the more conservative people in Congress said? Well, that's, we're not going to do that. But you see, Thad Stevens is a Republican. Thad Stevens understood the revolution was only beginning there. Now, some other members of Congress said, we're not going to go that far. But they had begun the revolution. They had opened the Pandora's box. This is like uh, in France, right? When you have Lafayette and all the other early revolutionaries saying, well, we need to have a constitutional monarchy. The Jacobins said, why stop there? We don't need to stop there. Why don't we just kill the king, take out the king, and go to something else? You see, you can't close it once you open it. And maybe you could say that about the American War for Independence as well. I, you, know, you can't close it once you open it. And... Uh, I think that that's what all these people that point to Lincoln should understand. 
that Lincoln inaugurated a, a revolution, a political revolution, what ultimately amounted to an economic revolution, a social revolution. All of that began in 1861 when Lincoln decided to send 75,000 troops into the South. That's what happened. And so uh, when we look at Lincolnian nationalism, I mean, he, what is that even? And I'll talk about this as we get through the piece. So let's read this. Conversations about nationalism are seemingly everywhere. I agree. Ever since Donald Trump declared he was a nationalist, the term, as well as its usefulness, meaning, and morality, has been litigated tirelessly. Church leaders, intellectuals, politicians, and telemedia personalities all apparently have a lot to say about the debate. Conservatives seem particularly confused over the relationship between federalism and nationalism, and whether the latter is even an appropriate mantle for U.S. conservatives to claim. Well, I mean, yeah. So he's, he's bringing up a point that I would say, well, we don't need nationalists. Uh, and conservatives are confused about this. It depends on what you mean by nationalism. I mean, this, this comes down to the, to the major point here. What, kind, what, what, what does that term even mean, right? So is it Trumpian nationalism, which as I've pointed out yesterday, Donald Trump is really just a New Deal Democrat. I mean, he's an FDR Democrat. And uh, that, I mean, that, I think that defines Donald Trump more than anything else. During the Trump administration, I had about five books in my head that I thought I should write on Donald Trump. Uh, and I just never had time to do any of it. But writing about what this actually is, what Trump nationalism really means, and more importantly, what, what this means for America, not just Trump himself, but what is, what is the meaning of America first? Where does that come from and what does that mean? And how do we wrestle with that? And so, of course, uh, as I taught nationalism for years before Donald Trump even said it in 2016, 2015, actually, uh, we, we wrestle with this in class all the time. You had, in the, in the late 19th century, you had the progressives take the mantle of nationalism and in the early 20th century. And what they meant by that, as you see with people like Bellamy, uh, Francis Bellamy and the Pledge, what they meant by that was a singular entity that had uh, complete control over the entire political, economic, and social processes in the United States. What they didn't want was any kind of block from the states. Progressives used nationalism as a code word for progressivism. It became synonymous, one and the same. We had to have a national agenda. It had to be a one-size-fits-all situation. And we had to have reform. Nationalism became reform. So we have all these different types of nationalism meeting running around. And I think and that's what Smith is going to get into a little bit. He says, we haven't always struggled to reconcile nationalism with conservatism or even liberalism for that matter. Lincoln's House Divided Speech, delivered 165 years ago today, proposed that the United States could no longer allow certain moral issues to be left to the whims of individual states. Slavery was such a grave concern that it was a national issue, so it had to be addressed by national power. Uh, so, Lincoln, in, uh, in 18... Well, it's House Divided Speech, right? So he's writing this... Um, let me see here. He's writing this on June 16th, right? June 16th, 18... Uh, uh, Lincoln, on June 16th, in his, in his House Divided Speech in the 1850s, said, look... Um, 1858, look, what we have is a um, situation we can't have a house divided against itself. Uh, slavery is a, more, a national issue. 
Well, in some ways, Lincoln wasn't incorrect about that. Slavery was a national issue. It wasn't just a Southern issue. It was a national issue. But Lincoln was 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 doing some things here that, uh, as I've talked about in my reading Abraham Lincoln class at McLean Academy, which, by the way, you get 25% off if you're listening in June. Uh, Lincoln was always aware of, he was, he was very good at this, always aware of the larger picture and what rhetoric could mean, whether it was true or not. And Lincoln wasn't necessarily concerned about the, uh, the issue of slavery other than politically. In fact, Lincoln was always willing to allow slavery to exist in the South. But what he did want was the Western territories. And he thought eventually that would lead to the extermination of the institution if he bottled it up in the South. But uh, I think that rhetorically he was doing this to try to gain political points, at least from some members of his own party. But Lincoln, the politician, was always willing to do things that were a little different. So Smith says, Michael Knox uh, Barron noted that all Lincoln flirted with romantic nationalism, a la Bismarck, Cavour, and other European nationalists. He never embraced it to the same extent. Lincolnian nationalism, as rendered in the House Divided speech, remained constitutional, federalist, and liberal. This Lincolnian nationalism has served the United States well for 160 years and still can serve the United States. So Lincolnian nationalism is constitutional, federalist, and liberal. It's all the three, right? It's all three things. He wasn't a European nationalist. He wasn't Otto von Bismarck or Count de Cavour in Italy. He wasn't any of that. He was something different. Now, I would disagree with that. I think Lincoln was, in many ways, and maybe he, I don't think he was read enough, he was well-read enough to understand all these other influences and nuances of nationalism. But if you go back and look at Lincoln's Lyceum Address, and what he talked about in 1838, he was a romantic nationalist. He was. Lincoln, from that point forward, if you look at, what, look at Lincoln's political life in the entirety, beginning the 1830s, espouse things about nationalism and civic religion and civic nationalism that would very much fit in with these other European nationalists. And not just that, uh, Lincoln, I think, did believe in a one-people thesis for America. I mean, he, he thought that was the case. We had an American people, an American nation, which would fly in the face of the arguments that had been made by Southerners in the 1830s and even before that, and then, of course, moving forward. So Smith says, in 1858, Stephen Douglas, Illinois senator, a senior United States senator, stood at the height of his political power. Over the past six years, he had bent his fellow Democrats to his will on the issue of slavery and territorial expansion. Southern slaveholders argued that slavery, as with any type of property holding, shouldn't be prohibited in any federal territory. On the estate, they argued, could outlaw slavery. Meanwhile, the newly formed Republican Party argued that Congress ultimately had the final say on slavery in the territories. But Douglas shoved both of these arguments aside, arguing that the people of a given territory could decide for themselves whether they would allow slavery or not. This proposition, coined popular sovereignty, became Douglas's watchword any time the question of slavery in the territories was a national debate. So, uh, and this is a nice summary of what happened. Um, it wasn't just Southerners, by the way, that thought this was uh, an issue that was for states alone. There were many Northerners that thought the exact same thing. This wasn't just a position that Southerners held exclusively to themselves. Uh, 
You would be hard-pressed to find many Southerners, though, that would uh, adopt the Republican platform, though there were. If you go back into the early federal period, or maybe into the, well, I say the Jeffersonian period, you had people like Philip Pendleton Barber, who was a Southerner, who said that Congress could regulate slavery in the territories as part of the municipal power. So there were Southerners that would agree with this position. I mean, you even saw it when you had the Missouri Compromise of 1820. This was There were enough Southerners that would agree with federal control over the issue that they would allow that compromise to be pushed through the Congress. So it wasn't exclusive to either place, so I think you would find more Southerners who were opposed to it, and you would find Northerners who would actually support the Southern position. Though, again, they were in the minority there as well. So this really was not just North-South, but you had, in some ways, it was determined by party, in some ways. Not in every way. This is, of course, going to lead to the breakup of the Whig Party over this issue because Southern Whigs would tend to align with Southern Democrats on the uh, issue of slavery extension, whereas Northern Whigs would tend to align with uh, Free Soilers and others on the extension of, of slavery in the territories. Northern Democrats would tend to align with Southern Democrats on this particular issue. And there were a lot of Northern Democrats. <laughs> Stephen Douglas is a Northern Democrat. Now, Smith says, Douglas's proposal was Democratic and Federalist. It was also relatively popular. Democratic and Federalist. So it's Democratic, meaning that this is the people decide. We're going to vote. We're going to decide on this. But it's also Federalist because, well, he's looking at states as the building blocks of the entire system. It's also popular. He was right about this. Not only did Congress pass the Kansas-Nebraska Act, they'd already decided to organize Utah and New Mexico, the Utah and New Mexico territories, on this very principle in 1850. So it wasn't just the Kansas-Nebraska Act four years earlier. You had the Compromise of 1850, which used popular sovereignty in the Western territories. So he's incorrect that the Kansas-Nebraska Act, he says Congress passed the Kansas-Nebraska Act, the first major territorial legislation enacting popular sovereignty. It wasn't. That would be the Compromise of 1850, with both Northern and Southern support. So as those territories would be organized in the West, off the Compromise of 1850, you would have had popular sovereignty. All Douglas did in 1854 is say, you know, I know this territory was organized uh, under the Missouri Compromise and it should be prohibited to slavery. But didn't we just use popular sovereignty here and everybody was fine with it? Why don't we use it here? Why don't we expand that into the other Western territories and we'll go with that? And of course, this had both Northern and Southern support. He's, He's right about that. Uh, without question, he's right about that. And the same thing in, in 1850. In fact, people like Daniel Webster in 1850, when when the Compromise of 1850 passed, he was back in Boston trying to uh, support the terms. And one of those, of course, was a stronger fugitive slave law, and he's helping round up fugitive slaves in Boston. And this really got Daniel Webster in hot water, but that was something that he said was for the good of the Union. Got him in hot water with his own constituents. So Miles says, but anti-slavery Northern Whigs and members of the newly created Republican Party formed the core of opposition at Kansas, Kansas, Nebraska. Abraham Lincoln, at the time, a well-paid railroad lawyer who had been out of politics for six years, fumed at the law. Slavery was something far too morally grave to be dealt with merely democratically. Fumed. Uh, and you know, Lincoln was, of course, 
interested in keeping the territories, the Western territories. As he told Douglas in 1858, uh, white. That's what his point was. Look, uh, here, Douglas, see, in the 1858 Lincoln-Douglas debates, Douglas put Lincoln on the defensive by bringing up race. And Lincoln spent a lot of time talking about race because Douglas understood that the voters of, of Illinois, generally, were not going to be in favor of any kind of racial egalitarianism. So when Douglas points this out and puts Lincoln on the defensive, and they have to talk about race all the time, that, that created a successful path to victory for Douglas. It shows you what the racial consciousness of Illinois was. Now, there were certain parts of Illinois that were certainly much more tolerant to abolitionists and emancipation than other parts of Illinois. Southern Illinois was very much uh, anti uh, anti-Republican Party, anti uh, any kind of racial uh, equality, uh, they they just didn't care for it. In fact, uh, there was some discussion when the war began of that section breaking off from Illinois and joining the Confederacy. Uh, this didn't happen, and uh, one of the more prominent Union generals of the war, who has a big statue in D.C. now, who was an I mean ardent. You know, races pro-slavery at one point, and then he switches sides, and he becomes ardently anti-slavery, you know, anti-racist supposedly. But um, it's just it's a funny thing that they they still you know nobody really calls this guy out for that. But anyways, I think Smith is being a little bit too uh, generous to Lincoln here and what he was really trying to do. Abraham Lincoln argued that since the Republic's inception, Congress and not territorial settlers had the ultimate say on slavery in the territories. After all, in 1820, both congressional houses passed the Missouri Compromise, forbidding slavery anywhere north of a line that formed the southern border of Missouri. For 35 years, the line held steady. That is, until Douglas's popular sovereignty doctrine allowed for the potentiality of slavery to be legalized anywhere that wasn't already a free state. By 1858, well, let me back up here. Lincoln wasn't necessarily lying about this. I mean, Congress did have a role for a long period of time in regulating slavery in the territories. They had agreed to it, but that doesn't mean that everyone agreed that this was the proper constitutional place. It didn't mean that that was not contested, because it was. Now, Lincoln will, in several speeches, go back and try to give a history lesson on this. And again, I cover this at reading Abraham Lincoln at McClanahan Academy. I go through this. I go through what Lincoln says about all these things. And he's not necessarily incorrect about this, but um, there was certainly, these were certainly debatable positions. Did Congress have this kind of power in the territories? And there were many Southerners, and even some Northerners who said they didn't. By 1858, Douglas staked his political future on the theory of popular sovereignty, the theory made slavery a local and democratic question, yet Lincoln, Douglas's opponent in the Illinois election for U.S. Senate, saw slavery as a national issue requiring a similarly national response. Lincoln believed the United States was not just a confederation of states. Rather, it was a nation that necessarily had a unitary moral foundation and moral purposes to allow every man to keep what he earned from the sweat of his brow. So Lincoln wasn't just a confederation of states, it was a nation. Well, there's other people that had said these very things. Lincoln wasn't the first to say that. 
As historian Mark E. Neely notes, Lincoln's entire political philosophy was built around the idea that the broad identity of a wage-earning nation would triumph over petty local or state identities, especially if these identities were wedded to slavery. Now, Neely is one of these interesting characters that downplays abuse of power in the Lincoln administration. Uh, he, he wrote a book on this, and, ah, you know, it wasn't really as bad as opponents pointed out to be. It wasn't. I mean, yeah, some people were arrested and some things happened, but for the most part, this is just exaggerated. Not much of this was really going on. Neely is a Lincoln worshiper, and of course he's going to do this. I think that's the problem. When you These people aren't detached from Lincoln. They are Lincoln worshipers. And they're going to paint Lincoln in the most positive light they can. In Lincoln's opinion, the agitation over slavery wouldn't stop until a crisis shall have been reached and passed. A house divided itself cannot stand. This government cannot endure, Lincoln intoned, permanently half-slave and half-free. Well, why not? Why can't it? It could have. Why wasn't it? Because there's agitators, like Lincoln. It could have remained that. You know who thought it could remain that? George Washington. That's why I said George Washington is the nationalist that really viewed Union the way that Union was, uh, that Union had to be maintained in the founding generation, which was a federal republic. Washington said it over and over again. Washington was a nationalist, though, and he, he tried to do things that would benefit all and burden all equally. Lincoln didn't. Lincoln wanted to do things that would burden one and benefit one burden one side and one party and benefit his own party and own section. In this regard, Lincoln departed from the revolutionary and constitutional generations, which had been content to allow the United States to remain divided over the question of slavery, precisely because they did not have the same nationalistic framework that Lincoln had. Yeah, they didn't have a sectional nationalism. This is important, right? It wasn't that Washington wasn't against slavery, because he was. He wanted it gone. He wanted it out of Virginia. He wanted some way to figure out how to get rid of this thing. Washington was not interested in the perpetuation of slavery, or the expansion of slavery for that matter. He thought something should be done about it sometime. But he also understood that agitating on this issue would destroy the Union, which was the most important thing to Washington. It would destroy the quote-unquote nation that had been created. Because we didn't have a real nation of similar people. We had different peoples around the United States. And so Lincoln's nationalism was an aggressive, destructive nationalism. This is why we should never use Lincoln in this way. You use Lincoln, what you're actually saying is, if you don't agree with me, I'll kill you. And that's what he did. Union for Lincoln entailed an indivisible nation. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. Even when the house did fall, Lincoln believed the national level ideal, or I should say, was worth fighting for. Yeah. So it's okay to go to war to fight for the national ideal. You see, this is where Smith is completely wrong. It's okay to kill people because you want to force your position on them. Lincoln was the most divisive president in American history, evidenced by the fact that a million people died because they didn't really want to be part of his government. There's a section of people that didn't want to be part of his government anymore. The most divisive president in American history. I know Donald Trump likes to run around saying that, or, but Lincoln was. No question. 
The Lincolnian nationalism announced in the House Divided speech and enacted by the Civil War was liberal. Enacted by the Civil War. This is a very strange thing. We're going to champion something that's enacted by a war? A nationalism that, that led to war? Why would we do that? Why would we enact something that's going to lead to violence? The Republican Party sought to enact capitalistic reforms across the Union and to finally remove slavery, the great obstacle to the individualistic equality proclaimed by the Declaration of Independence. Well, we know that the founding generation just didn't really believe much of that. We know that, I mean, they, they talked about it for a little while in the 1770s and 1780s, but by the 1790s, most had abandoned this kind of thing. And Washington was aware, and of course others, conservatives in particular, that the French Revolution, which you could say might have been influenced by the American War for Independence, Americans did champion it at first, had gone way too far, and they didn't want that happening here. It was also conservative because of its commitment to natural rights and the endurance of the traditional social order wherein humans pursued virtue, good, and truth. Now, it's conservative because, well, uh, the, uh, the Straussians say it's conservative because it's Harry Jaffa says it's conservative. I don't think there's anything about Lincoln that was conservative. Nothing. And it was federal in that it kept the constitutional order basically intact even during the Civil War. No, it didn't. Not at all. It transformed the Constitution, particularly uh, after the war. It transformed it. This wasn't a conservative order that had been created. It was a revolutionary order. So, look, again, I like Miles. But this piece is, uh, is so far off base. Modern conservatives warring over the excesses of gendered ideology, abortion, and other hot-button cultural issues have good reasons to believe that some political questions are too serious to be left to localities or states. You see, what he's advocating here uh, is, well, these things are too big. We've got to have a national decision on this. So what happens if you're in the minority? What happens if the Congress is not controlled by you and they say, you know what, we'll just take the, I mean, um, you know, abortion, whatever, gender ideology, LGBTQ+, whatever it is. We're going to have a national policy on these and it's going to force conservatives, Christians, to accept the liberal order. Do you want that? They're saying that's moral. You're saying it's not. Do you want that? You see, Southerners were willing to say, we'll just leave this up to the states. I mean, the territories have to be open because it's common property of the United States. Once it becomes a state, it can do what it wants. But do you want this? Do you want a one-size-fits-all government? Which is seemingly what Smith is arguing here. He says, but that doesn't mean conservatives need to appeal to post-liberal fads of the day. The legacy of Lincolnian nationalism is conservative and liberal. It's federalist and constitutional. It's worth keeping. And 100% incorrect. It's not conservative and liberal at all. It's liberal. There's nothing conservative about it. It didn't seek to conserve anything. It sought to disrupt the entire order of America. It's not really federalist and constitutional. In fact, um, even Northerners were saying Lincoln was running all over the Constitution. The Constitution wasn't preserved by the Union. It was destroyed. So to, to say that it's worth keeping is ridiculous. 
Uh, if you want to have a real nationalism, have a George Washington-type nationalism, which of course would be something that uh, was very much in line with how uh, a real union and a real uh, a real type of benefit all and burn all benefit all and burden all government. I mean, this is what we needed: a Washingtonian nationalism, not a Lincolnian nationalism. If you're going to look for that, go to George Washington, not Abraham Lincoln. And as I said, this is a preview. My next class is reading George Washington at McClanahan Academy. It'll be out in July. And we're going to get into this. Who Washington was as a man, why he's important, and why we should still listen to George Washington. If you're looking for a, a an individual who espoused the real ideals of the early American Federal Republic, which was what was, I mean, that's what we should have followed the entire time, not something entirely different, which is what Lincoln did. All right. See you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.